Morning everybody, hope you're all well. Uh, my name's Josh, I'm part of the leadership team uh, here at RK and I'm going to be continuing our mini-series today through Acts and I'm just going to continue straight off from where Andrea finished last week. So we're going to be looking at Acts 17, 1 through to 15. And to be honest, when I first uh, read this passage, I thought, great, this is not exactly the most exciting passage to try and prepare a talk uh, for. But then it reminded me of a story that I heard recently. Uh, and in 1996, a man called Stan Caffey was, he was a pipe fitter from Nashville, Tennessee. And Stan bought a souvenir copy of the Declaration of Independence from a garage sale or a garage sale. And as a typical bachelor, he thought it would make a good decoration for his garage stroke man cave. Uh, so he stuck it to the wall of his garage. Then 10 years later, that bachelor got married. And typically, his new wife made him clear out the garage, which also included getting rid of this stained old scrappy souvenir. They debated what to do with it. Stan wanted to keep it. She wanted to donate it to the charity shop. And like any debate that anyone has with the, the wife, uh, she won. So she took uh, an antique table, a shower massage head, and this everyday copy of the Declaration of Independ Independence to the charity shop. It was in that charity shop that a man called Michael Sparks was browsing through the shelves and stumbled on this yellow rolled up piece of paper. $2.48 is all Michael Sparks had to stump up for this document, which turned out to be one of 200 official copies of the Declaration of Independence. That, those, those 200 copies were commissioned in 1820 and it was later sold by Michael Sparks for $477,650, nearly half a million dollars. When Stan heard, all he could say was, I'm happy for this Michael Sparks guy. If I still had it, it would still be stuck on the wall of my garage and I still wouldn't know it's worth nearly half a million dollars. But I can't help but feel not very smart. It turns out, that you can have an actual copy of a Declaration of Freedom in your possession and not actually value it. You can hold something in your hands, something valuable enough that it would change your whole life and just send it straight out of your life. Just discard it as if it was worthless. Uh, and in this passage that we're going to look at today, Paul is trying to show people that they have in their possession a Declaration of Freedom that shouldn't just be left stuck on a garage wall, but it should be exposed and valued for what it really is. So let's have a look. Uh, let's start off in this passage. So Acts 17, we're starting in verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So Philippi is where Paul was when Andrea left off last week. Uh, and it's where he cast out the demon out of the girl uh, and then he gets arrested and, and thrown into jail and then he gets let out of jail and then he decides to make his way on this 100 mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica which leads us up to verse 2. As was his custom Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, there are a few things that stood out to me when I was reading this. And the first one is that Paul goes straight to the synagogue. He, he goes to where the people are. It literally is doing what Jesus told his disciples to do, to go and preach the gospel. Uh, and I think we can take some encouragement from that. We don't all need to go into synagogues and preach like Paul did. But Paul knew his people. He knew how to talk to them and he knew where his people were. And in the same way, you know your people. You know how to talk to them, your friends, your family. You know uh, how to communicate with them. We're all completely different. We all communicate in different ways. So use your way of communicating whatever uh, way you can to, to share the gospel. But there's one key thing, uh, one of the key things that jumped out to me when uh, I was reading this passage is that Paul was there for three Sabbaths. Now, I don't know if that means that it was there for th three literal weeks or for three consecutive Sabbaths. But I wouldn't be, su be surprised if it was for three, three actual weeks. But what it shows is that Paul took his time uh, and he reasoned with them. He explained things to them from the scriptures. He proved using the scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. This means he took time to dialogue with them. Both parties were talking. It wasn't just Paul stood on a pulpit and preaching at them. It wasn't just screaming verses at people and telling them what they should believe. It was allowing people to talk, to ask questions. And I think that Paul knew that to help people understand the real impact of the message is to actually talk, to have dialogue. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have questions asked. And it's okay if you get asked a question not to know the answer. Because you can always turn to this book for the answer. And one of, one of the scriptures that's closest to my heart is 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And this passage changed things for me when I first really started having a deep faith. It's because I made a conscious decision to ask the big questions. I wanted to be able to give an answer if people asked me, why are you a Christian? I didn't just want to say I was a Christian because my mum took me to church when I was a kid. I needed to know I actually believed what I said I did. And to be honest, I didn't really want to waste my time um, saying that I believed something that I didn't. I've got better things to be doing. So I started on this journey to ask myself questions about what I believed and, and, now, and know why I believed it. Starting with the big questions of how is the world formed? Was it created or was it just a complete accident of gases colliding? If it was created, then by who? If there is a God, what or who is he? I wanted to openly look at all possibilities for the answers to those questions. 
and it led me to a position where I undoubtedly believed that the Bible set it, that the Bible uh, is what it says it is. And before I went on this journey, when I first started really giving Christianity a go in my early 20s, I think I just got frustrated with Christianity, to be honest. Like it was a bounce check promising me something but delivering nothing. I'd go to church, I'd listen to these perfect people preaching to me. I'd hear people's stories of transformed lives, uh, people coming out of addiction and uh, and whilst they were amazing stories and many people could relate to similar stories, I couldn't. I started thinking, what's wrong with me? Does God not love me like he does these other people? Have I messed up uh, and not become Christian enough? Does God uh, know that deep down I'm not really a Christian? Because when I started following Jesus, things actually got harder. My, my brother nearly died in a car crash. Relationships started to break down. I lost a bit of confidence in myself, so found things to give me back that confidence, like the people that I hung around with, going out partying and drinking, and I felt like a bit of an outsider in the church. But I honestly think my problem was that I didn't understand the story of the Bible properly. I didn't understand the gospel for the full story that it is. And here Paul is teaching them what the gospel is. He's proving using the Old Testament scriptures that everything in the scriptures points to Jesus. And I wonder if he used passages like Psalm 22 that says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments or Isaiah 53 but he was pierced for his transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed and there are so many other passages like that that all point to Jesus and I wonder if he went through the scriptures and pointed out look what it says look what happened it all points to Jesus. Now, what we have to remember here is that the people that Paul was talking to were Jews and, and also God-fearing Greeks. But back then, Jew or not, the majority of people believed in some sort of God. And the Jews in particular would not have questioned that there was actually a God, a God that created the universe, created the earth, created us. So it got a starting point, they'd got that bit nailed. What Paul had to do was show them that all that, all that early scripture pointed to Jesus. You see, the problem for us is that that's not the case anymore. Our culture's go-to worldview is atheism, that the world created itself and that we're just an accident. And my problem at the start of my Christian journey is that I started the gospel story at the wrong point. My gospel story started something like this. I'm a sinner. I've done some bad stuff. I'm not perfect in any way and I need help. But if I turn to Jesus, he'll forgive me, make me better. He's paid the price for all my bad stuff. And one day I can go to heaven. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong. That's all true. But it's a bit like watching a football match, but fast forwarding into the score at the end, you miss the story of the game. You miss the goals. And I think if you want to understand the gospel, you've got to start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the galaxies, animals, and then last of all, he created us, humans. Now, one thing that I'm grateful to my mum for is that she brought us up to respect everyone. And that is so right because every man, woman, regardless of your faith, your colour of your skin, how much money you've got, how many times you've been arrested, how many times you've messed up, you are of infinite value because you were formed in the image of God. So the next time you go outside and look at the stars in amazement, or a waterfall, or stand at the top of a mountain and take in the view, or pine over the cutest of animals, know that none of them are formed in the image of God, but you are. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but you can take a £10 note, you can screw it up, you can rub it in the dirt, you can rip it, well, you can rip the old £10 notes, the plastic ones are a bit more difficult now, but you can, you can rip it, you can tear it, you can break it, but it's still worth £10. And that's the same for us. No matter how screwed up, messed up you might think that you, you are, you're still worth that original value. And that's where the story starts. God created us and loved us and wanted a personal relationship with us. But then Genesis 3 happened, which is where Adam and Eve went against God. My problem when I first started my Christian journey is that I was a Genesis 3 Christian, not a Genesis 1. I started my story as though I was a sinner to start with. But God loved me before that. I'm not going to get into an apologetics talk because, to be honest, there are much more intelligent people than me for that. But if you want evidence that the earth was created and not just an accident, then there's loads out there. And I'd be, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that because people think it takes a lot of faith to believe in God, to believe that God created the earth. But I think it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that the earth created itself out of nothing. And if you want the best evidence for God, then we can jump straight into this passage and the message that Paul is giving. If you want to touch and see God, then the best way for that to happen is for God to become to come down from heaven and become a man. Enter Jesus. People don't deny that Jesus actually existed because history tells us that he did. History backs up the Bible. Some people think that Jesus was a great man and a great teacher, but don't think that he was God. But I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And the message of Jesus uh, offends people. It offends people now, and it was no different back then. Jews thought their Messiah was going to be this mighty warrior king who would lead his people into battle and defeat the mighty power of Rome. So to say that the Messiah was a woodworker who died on a Roman cross instead of conquering Rome offended them. But Paul wouldn't compromise on the crucifixion or the resurrection, and neither should we. They're pivotal in the Christian faith because, as Paul knew, the whole of the Christian faith, all the Bible, was useless without it. Look at uh, this in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. This is why the resurrection validates the promises and hope in the scriptures, because without the resurrection, the hope of the gospel dies. But death didn't conquer Jesus, Jesus conquered death. And that's why our preaching is not useless. That's why your faith is not useless. Let's jump back into this passage in Acts. So uh, we'll jump back in at verse 5. And we'll go through to nine. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them out. First of all, if you were Jason, you'd be pretty annoyed. You've welcomed some people to your house, then you've got arrested, and now you've got to pay a bond to get out. But, but firstly, they accused the Christians as who had turned the world upside down. Secondly, they accused Jason of being hospitable towards Paul and Silas. And third, they said that they were proclaiming the rule of another king called Jesus. Well, I think they hit the nail on the head. And, and anyone who calls himself a Christian should have an I am Spartacus moment when hearing those accusations. Because Christians should turn the world upside down. They should love their fellow believers and support them in spreading the message of the gospel. And finally, they should say that they will serve no other king but Jesus. And that's what happens when we faithfully proclaim the gospel. So let's look at this last bit in Acts 10, 10 through to 15. It's as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. I think this section is almost like a, a mirror image of the first, but with a slight dif different response. First off, Paul goes straight to the synagogue to teach the gospel. But you notice the difference between the people in Berea and Thessalonica is that the people in Berea listened to what Paul said, but then examined the scripture for themselves to test what Paul was saying was right and make sure they believed what he was saying was true. And I think that's a wise thing to do, no matter if it's a in a religious context or in a secular context. We should never believe outright what people tell you, unless my kids are listening, and then they should always believe when I'm telling them something. Well, maybe not. We, we were once outside Morrison's and, and there was this fire engine parked outside uh, and Alexia asked me what he was doing there. So I said, well, it's raining, so it's, it's collecting the rainwater so that it can put out fires. That's how they get the water. Uh, and only recently um, she told me that that is what she still thought that was true and she'd been telling all of her friends. So you probably get what I'm trying to say here. It's, we should always be willing to question what people tell us and ask our own questions and do our own research. That's why being in connect groups, in home groups, is so good because you get to question things and see what other people think. You get to have dialogue and investigate if you agree with what people tell you. I don't think that the Christian faith is a blind faith. The Bible makes some pretty big claims that require serious thought. The Bible makes the massive claim that there is an absolute authority and says there is only one way to eternal life. So a Christian faith can't be seen as just jumping off the cliff. But we come to the understanding through consideration, through investigation and through God's grace, the truth claims that the Bible makes. Whether you're a Christian or not sure what you think, I think we've all got a declaration of freedom stuck on the wall somewhere. Maybe you don't know the true value of it. Maybe you don't know that it has the potential to change your life. But I believe this book and the story it tells from start to finish can help you see that it's not just a cheap souvenir, but it's accessible for you. And if you already know that you've got that declaration of freedom, then always be ready to give an explanation. Always be ready to help other people see that that scrap of paper they have hung on their wall can change their lives. Thank you. Take care. God bless.